Um, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love me, love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, um, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tom, for the reading, and Trey for helping me get up here. <laughs> okay. Good morning, Redemption. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm a, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, I'm not quite off of injured reserve, but uh, I did get cleared by my surgeon this week to start public speaking again. He said I couldn't, couldn't possibly hurt my shoulder if I was just talking. So um, it's good to be back up here. Appreciate uh, the three T's, Tyler, Tyler, and Trey filling in uh, these last few weeks for me to, yeah, they were terrific. Um, I love that about the church, that God uses uh, all the voices that he wants, not the voices that we want, and that's a really good thing. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Resurrection Weekend. It's coming up in two weekends. Uh, first of all, Friday night, we are going to have uh, our, our uh, Good Friday services at 6.30, I'm sorry, at 6 and 7.30, 6 and 7.30. Uh, they'll be driven mostly by um, music and liturgy. I'll talk for about 8 or 10 minutes, I promise, just 8 or 10 minutes. It'll be less than an hour each one. Uh, and then Saturday morning, we've got the big um, uh, uh, morning that uh, Emmy is planning for all the kids and the Easter egg hunt and all that stuff that's going on. Uh, and then, of course, Sunday morning, we're going to ask, if you look around this room, very few empty seats. Uh, they're even setting up some chairs in the, in the lobby right now. We're going to ask as many of you as can, that would, it would work for you to come to our 7.30 service. We're going to have that on. We, we've done this pre-COVID. We did a lot of 7.30 services on Easter. So if you could come at 7.30, that would be a big help to us. That would open up uh, the next two services uh, for people to be able to come maybe their first time to redemption. Uh, but if you could come at 7.30, that'd be great. But we'll also have our 9 and our uh, 10.45. And I want to remind everybody that uh, we're also going to be doing baptisms on that day. And we're going to do them in the service. We're not going to do them out there. We're going we're to actually incorporate them into the service. So uh, whatever service you decide you want to get baptized in. And if you want to get baptized, or, or even if you just, you're not sure and you just want to talk about it, please email me or talk to me after this service or whatever. I'm, I'm the one who's kind of heading... Uh, all of that up along with Stephanie in terms of um, organizing it. So um, I think there's, oh, one other thing. I just talked about Resurrection Weekend. There's a lot going on that weekend, right? Okay, thank you, Ben, for affirming that. So um, <laughs> we could really use some volunteer help for that weekend as well. So if you could uh, uh, talk to um, Stephanie or Andrea or one of the pastors about being able to help us sometime during that weekend, Friday night, uh, Saturday morning, or uh, on Sunday. That would really be uh, helpful to us. There's a lot of moving parts over that weekend, so please let us know if you can help us that weekend. Let me pray, and then we're going to get into our text, which is John 21 today. Our gracious and holy God, we're thankful for your word and its truth, and we're thankful, as Nick prayed earlier uh, in this service, that 
people like John, filled with the Holy Spirit and even being led by the resurrected Christ, writing so many words for us from you that we can study so that we can know you better, so we can understand your good news. God, we're thankful for that. And so now as we open your word and study it, proclaim the good news of Jesus, talk about how it's applied to our lives today, I just pray that your spirit would be welcomed by all of us here, that your spirit would carry the word of God to the people of God, so that our lives could continue to be transformed. We ask that in the name of your son, amen. So uh, the last three weeks, uh, we've had... Well, the last several weeks, we've had the cross, the death of Jesus, the crucifixion. We talked about the burial. We had one entire message just about the burial and how important that is of Jesus. And then the last three weeks, we've talked about resurrection sightings, uh, Jesus busting out of the tomb, which we're going to celebrate again in, in two weeks. And, and, and it's interesting that the way John narrates a story about how John and Peter raced to the tomb when they heard this word, and they found the empty tomb, and then Jesus appears first to Mary, and it's a really tender, tender moment. And and he just looks at her when she's confused about who he is, and he just says, Mary. And it reminds us that uh, his sheep hear his voice, and she realizes that it's Jesus. And then he hangs out with the disciples, except for Thomas, And then Thomas gets led into the group um, seven days later, and and he has this this encounter with Thomas, which is magnificent. And Thomas just, when he realizes, again, the the proper response, when he realizes it's Jesus, he just says, my Lord and my God. That's it, you know? And And then at the end of 20, chapter 20, John reminds us of the purpose of him writing this gospel. And we've been going through this gospel off and on for more than the last two years. And we've, we've reminded you of his purpose, but we, and we keep coming back to it. But it's an important purpose. He says, Jesus performed a number of other signs and did many other things. But these things I've written here in this book for those who read it so that as they read it, they might see the signs and the miracles and the teaching And believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing they would have life in his name. John becomes, with this verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, John becomes uh, an embodiment of what his, sort of his nickname is uh, throughout the centuries. He's known as John the Evangelist because he's he's proclaiming, he's evangelizing through his written words. He's testifying. He's giving us a firsthand witness of who Jesus is. And that's why he wrote this gospel. And and those words in verses 30 and 31 sound like a great way to end this gospel. But we're not quite there. John has yet another major resurrection appearance by Jesus to record. And it's a famous one. And it's one that many love to read and to study and to get at. But then also... In, in this last resurrection appearance, there's the matter of him commending Peter. We have this beautiful scene in verses 15 through 19 that Tom read for us, where Jesus goes to Peter to help him understand, not only is he restored, but also to help him understand what it is that's coming for him. That he's going to have a life of magnificent, great, but hard ministry. And then he's going to He's going to be executed in a magnificent and great and yet hard way at the end of his life in Rome. And so this chapter 21 is an epilogue of sorts. And most of the story that John gives us is complete, but there are a few loose ends to tie up, which pretty much describes what an epilogue is supposed to do. If you've ever gotten to the end of a movie or a book and you felt like there were a few questions that were left unanswered, you're always glad when there's that little epilogue or that last chapter or or the last five minutes of the show, whatever it might be, hoping that they're going to tie up those loose ends and not leave anything open to interpretation. And so John does that in in chapter 21. And here's something else to consider. Uh, There are a couple times in this gospel, I think, where the reader can get the impression that there was some tension between Peter and John. Uh, especially during the ministry, the passion, and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, I get that impression, that there's some tension between these two guys. 
And now John is writing this gospel account. I want you to understand this. Hang with me on this. You have to do a little bit of math. John is writing this gospel account of his about 20 years after the other three gospels were written and about 20 years after Peter's death in Rome. So John's had 20 years to think about all of that. And 20 years after everyone who had experienced Peter prior to the resurrection, prior to the cross, those who had had experienced Peter's life then, when Peter was impetuous and he was full of pride and he had what I would call a considerable case of foot and mouth disease, they experienced him then. And then they saw him after the resurrection, the Peter that we get in the book of Acts. And and as the bishop leading the church in Rome, and and when he's in Jerusalem going to the Sanhedrin and speaking boldly and confidently and without a care for his own personal safety or his life, they see Peter as the leader. They've seen him both ways. John is writing after that. So uh, people have seen both. And so I think it's probable that John includes this epilogue in part in order to tip his hat to Peter and to let us know, yeah, Peter is the man. The transformation that we see in Peter is amazing, and and we need to make sure we understand how that transformation got its start, because it gets its start in chapter 21. So at any rate, we're going to read it, we're going to discuss it, we're going to start at the very beginning of chapter 21, and if you have your Bibles, it would be really helpful if you could pull those out and follow along with me. So the first three verses, John writes this, after Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, that would be the Sea uh, Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, called uh, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night... They caught nothing. So they're out on the Sea of Galilee. And some of you might hear this story the way this is beginning and and think, "Mm, this sounds a little bit familiar, and it does. The story we're about to tell seems like it's already happened once in the Gospels somewhere. It is similar. The problem is, is that virtually every detail is actually different other than the fact that they ended up catching a lot. Virtually every other detail is different than the details we get in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Many differences. And we also need to remember (laughs) that in the first century, a lot of people did fishing as their vocation, their life, their sustenance, everything. And they would fish six days a week because they had to. And, And we need to remember that if you're a fisherman or a fisherwoman or a fisher person, however you want to describe it, If you're into fish, you're going to fish. You're going to fish every day. Jesus is gone. They're like, "Ah, let's go fishing. I know how to do that. That'll bring some sense of normalcy back to our life. And anyone who does fish a lot also knows that it's not unusual to have a no-catch day. Can I get an amen from the wranglers out there, right? Okay, not everyone is going to be a post-hurricane forest gump when it comes to (laughs) seaweed or sea life, anyway. So here are the differences between these two stories, and they are significant. Here, they're still out on the lake 100 yards from shore. In Luke, they were on the shore. Here, Jesus is not recognized until later. In Luke, they know it's Jesus because they had been talking with him just previously. Here, the event occurs at daybreak. In Luke, the event occurs after Jesus had been teaching It's in the late afternoon in Luke. In Luke, uh, here the the event occurs at daybreak. I said that. Okay, here they are still on the lake. And in Luke, they're cleaning and mending their nets on the shore. Here the net doesn't break. In Luke, the nets start breaking. And finally, here we see that this event launches this famous post-resurrection conversation that Peter and Jesus have in Luke. After after he helps him with the fishing, he goes off to heal a leper after they had caught the fish. So it's just completely different. And so that is our setup for what we might call the ensuing events. I'm really sorry. This is so hard to do this with one and a half hands, I got to tell you. 
Do you feel bad for me? Come on, feel bad for me. Uh, yeah, all right. I've been told. I've been told as a public speaker, never do anything like that. Sorry, public speaking gurus. All right, here we go. Four through eight. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, that would be John, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, Heard that it was the Lord, he put, on his, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the nets full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but they were about a hundred yards off. So this is the revelation. And you see that there is an interesting progression in the narrative. It's daybreak. It might be misty or foggy because it's daybreak and they're on water and they're a football field length away. So it would not be unusual that they wouldn't be able to recognize anybody at that point, but they could probably hear a verse, a voice and see an outline of somebody. And they hear, hear him, hey, have you caught anything? That's a common question to ask people who are fishing. But then when he says, well, put your net on the other side of the boat and see what happens, and they catch quite a load, and they're thinking, hey, this scenario happened once before. It could be Jesus. And John says it's Jesus. And Peter being Peter, he doesn't waste any time. He doesn't wait for the boat to get in. He puts on his outer garment, jumps in, and swims to the shore before uh, the, the boat. And the rest of them eventually get to shore. And here's what happens in verses 9 through 14. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in its place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus revealed to the, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So there were other uh, Jesus revelations during his resurrection time on earth, but this is the third time with his official, what you might call his official disciples. And, and there's one thing here that if you're reading, it just seems a little bit, Odd, besides the fact that they're having fish for breakfast, apparently Michael Scott was there having a fish stick sandwich or something, but besides the fact that they're eating fish for breakfast, there just seems to be something a little bit awkward and odd going on. So, it seems fairly routine until they all get to the fire on shore, they bring more fish, but it's kind of strange. The disciples knew it was Jesus, but they didn't want to comment on that. And everyone I've read on this issue, that was the one question I was like, I gotta, I'm going to have to go to the commentators and, and find out what they're saying. None of the commentators had a very good answer. Merrill Tenney had this. Their attitude was peculiar. Well, thanks. I figured that out on my own. Maybe I should write a commentary, you know. I suppose it was just one of those awkward human things. Does anybody besides me, you ever find that the other humans can be somewhat awkward, or is that just part of being married? I don't, I don't seem to understand that. But people tend to be awkward sometimes, okay? But what I would really like to discuss is the 153 fish. That's an interesting detail, an exact detail. Why such an exact detail? Well, there are three reasons. Number one, it verifies the eyewitness account. This sort of detail was important to first century eyewitness narrations and testimony. And so for John, it was a form of bona fides. Second of all, the description of the high number, the large uh, size of the fish, the large number of the fish, all of it big, and, and, and how the net was filled, but yet the nets didn't break. This is emblematic of Jesus' both his provision and his protection. For those who love him, he provided an amazing catch and then he protected the catch by keeping it intact. And then here's the third thing. If you just read a little history and search a little bit, what you begin to realize and understand is that fishermen in the first century always, always, always counted how many fish they got. 
And the reason you had to do that was because you usually had partners and you needed to make sure you could trust everybody before you took the fish to the markets and you got paid for the fish. You always counted the fish. This was a normal thing that would happen. And I, so I, I bring this up because some of you know there's, there have been a lot of efforts that people have made to come up with some sort of a secret mathematical code that John was trying to secretly tell just you insiders that really are smart about numerology and numbers and all that stuff, you know, the Bible code dudes, okay? I think you're overthinking it, all right? Here's one of the explanations. If you add one plus two plus three, has anybody heard this? Plus four plus five plus six plus seven plus eight, all the way up to 17. You add one plus every number up to 17, you get 153, And then you can kind of see there's fish and bread here. There's this reference then, apparently, to the feeding of the 5,000, where there were five loaves and then there were 12 baskets of of bread left over afterwards. Five plus 12 equals... I went to North High School. I can tell you it's 17, (laughs) all right? Okay. Here's another explanation. Well, um, there were 153 different types of fish in the Sea of Galilee in the first century. So they got, a, they got one of every different kind of the fish. That's what happened. Okay, I didn't see that detail in there, but that's what's been supposed. Okay, so how about this? The number was 153 and John wanted it recorded. Couldn't that be it? Okay, maybe it was just a picture, again, of, of Jesus' provision and protection. Maybe it's just because they count the fish. That's what they do. And John included that detail. Anyway, these guys see, get to see Jesus one last time before he heads to the Father. But this one time takes on great significance, especially now with this last paragraph that Tom read for us. I don't know that we would get the book of Acts without this paragraph here, this restoration of Peter. This launches us into the book of Acts Luke wrote it, but it launches us into that chronologically and historically. And it also gives us the Peter that we find in the book of Acts. So here's that paragraph again. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Simon said, To him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this to Peter, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus wraps things up with Peter. This is significant. It's a significant encounter that is both challenging and restorative. And this small but significant episode accomplishes three important things. Number one, it clearly affirms that Jesus still loves Peter Even though Peter denied him three times, it shows that Jesus had no intention of casting Peter away, so to speak. I mean, think about it. For all of us who are worried about our sin, our denial of Jesus, our our rebellion in quiet, dark places, if we remember what Peter did, that, that, that Jesus restored Peter, of course he can restore us in this way. It's not that we ever lost our salvation. It's not that Peter ever lost his salvation. But when you and I pull away the way Peter did, it's helpful when God comes to us and reminds us, you're with me. You're a part of me. You're restored. I did all of this for you, and nothing can undo it. need to remember that. Second of all, it communicates to Peter that he will have a very good and productive ministry, But it is his ministry that will eventually get him condemned and executed in Rome. So Jesus gives him that information as well. And then third, it demonstrates that Peter is fully restored to status, prominence, and ministerial commission for Jesus. 
in front of and in the eyes of all of the others, including John, which was important. So this paragraph is not a small issue. And I want to talk about a few other things to try to understand it a little bit better. First of all, we can see that rhetorically, the three questions that Jesus asked Peter parallel the three denials that Peter had for Jesus. And so you see this parallelism here, and it's a helpful picture of restoration, which is important. Second of all, this has been asked for a century, who or what was Jesus referring to when he says, more than these? Do you love me more than these? What was he referring to? It's ambiguous. There are at least three possibilities. Is it, Peter, do you love me more than the fish in the boat? Some of us love our vocations more than we love Jesus. We say we love Jesus, but really we love our careers and our vocations more. Maybe he's asking him that. Uh, Is Jesus saying, do you love me more than than you love the other disciples? Peter's like, that's easy. Um, Third, it could be, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Now, I have no idea which one of these it is. And, And ultimately... It doesn't matter which one it is because the point that Jesus and John are trying to get across here is, does Peter love Jesus? Yes. And what will that love cause, bring, motivate, inspire Peter to do? It inspires him to obedience. It inspires him to be a pastor and a minister. It inspires him. It it fills him. It causes him. It leads him. It shows him that he needs to tend, care for, feed the sheep of Jesus. And that's what his, the rest of his life is going to be. He's been a fisher of fish, now he's going to be a fisher of men with the gospel. It does not matter. What will Peter's love drive him to do? That's what's important. And then third, and this is important because we see in the text that this whole exchange causes Peter some grief. Jesus... Changes, you've probably heard some, some of you probably heard this. He changes the word for love that he uses in the third question. He uses it, he uses a, a particular word for love in the first two questions, then he changes it in the third question. And, and some people think it's an important change, not everybody. I, I think it's helpful to know. Now, many of you know that essentially we have one, in English, we have one word for love, okay? So I love Cheetos, I love my church. I love the Chicago Blackhawks, I love my community, I love Jackie, but those are all different loves, right? Different kinds of love, okay? I don't love Cheetos quite the way I love Jackie, it's a little bit different, okay? You get that, right? So in the ancient Greek, though, there's a number of different words that you can use for love for different contexts and different meanings. It's a little bit more exact and helpful. So... The first two times, Jesus uses the word agape. Now, agape love is a love that is unconditional, it's selfless, and it's committed. But this agape love, which is all over the New Testament, by the way, this agape love is not rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved, but it's rather rooted in the character of the one doing the loving. So in the Sermon on the Mount, when, Peter, when, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he uses the word agape. It's as though Jesus is saying, as he's teaching, listen, I know your enemies are not worthy of being loved from your perspective. They're your enemies. But I'm telling you to love them anyway because that's how you've been loved by the Father through me. So it's going to be out of your character that you're going to be able to love your enemies. But this... Third time, Jesus uses the word philia, where we get Philadelphia, brotherly love. And this love is kinship love, it's sibling love, it's familial love, it's a love that says, you are a part of me. And both loves are really important. But in this context, in this this conversation, this philia love tends to run deeper and more emotional for Peter in this particular situation. And the interesting thing is that every time that Jesus asked Peter, including the first two times when he used the word agape, Peter answered all three times with the word philia, which is interesting. Do you agapeo me, Peter? And he said, I philia. 
Jesus. That's, that's interesting that he went right there. And I would argue that this is part of why Peter is so grieved by this, because he's already answering him, saying, no, it's, it's not just agape, it's that I'm a part of you. Yes, I'm done. I'm done with this denial stuff. I see that you're, resur- I see that you're the Lord. I'm a part of you now. I'm going to do everything it takes. Jesus eventually asks him, he says, all right, do you love me? Not just in a, an unconditional way, Peter, but do you love me in a way that says you can't bear to be without me? That's what filial love says. And it reminds Peter that even though he was willing to deny uh, Jesus and deny this love that Jesus had for him earlier, Jesus never let go of this love for Peter. That's what grace is. Unmerited favor. Peter didn't do anything to deserve this. And yet there's Jesus giving him these loves. And second of all, Peter's at a point where he thinks he's fully communicated his devotion to Jesus, but Jesus has to ask one more time. And so Peter gets a little sad about his apparent inability to fully communicate his love to Jesus. But now Jesus is ready. He seems satisfied with Peter's response. In the end, Peter affirms his love for Jesus. All of his love in every way. Whatever kind of love that, that Jesus is expecting or requiring of us, Peter affirms it. And as it should, this love that Peter has for Jesus leads to Peter's obedience. So Peter agrees to feed the lambs and take care of the sheep. In other words, he agrees to both pastor and shepherd. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably, but there are subtle differences. He agrees to both pastor and shepherd the people of God in this new church movement, which, by the way, this new church movement in the first century still exists today, even though its demise has been predicted time and time again throughout the centuries, including right now. Hey, we need to remember that God is sovereign, God is good, and God is not going to be intimidated by the musings of haters. God loves and preserves his bride. So whatever special part we think we play in that, remember, it's his work, it's his power. We're being used by him, and that's a privilege and an honor. Anyway, this love that Peter has for Jesus will now find its action and fulfillment in Peter's focused, committed, and dangerous ministry for the rest of his life. And the differences in how Jesus responds, he says, feed, then he says, tend or take care of, and then he says, feed, reminds Peter that pastoring is a multifaceted engagement. To feed literally means to protect the flock, and to tend and care for literally, literally means to provide, and guide, provide for and guide the flock. And so protect, how, how, how does a pastor protect? Yeah, pastor needs to protect the congregation, especially from false teachers and the lies of the culture and the world that we live in. We're going to go into the book of Colossians after Easter. And that's one of the reasons why Paul writes the book of Colossians is because the people in in ancient Colossae, in that church, are under uh, the thumb of this worldly, plausible philosophy that is actually untrue. And Paul is concerned about that, so he writes them. But then protect and to guide, yes. Protect and guide the flock by making the gospel come to life in all of life's contexts. Work, friendship, family, church, education, even in the midst of college rivalries, which I know is really hard for some of you. And that's what Peter did. He did that except the college part. He did it in all of those other areas. And then again, 18 and 19. Let me just reread that. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands And another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. These are prophetic words by Jesus here. And we know from the book of Acts that that Peter was a persistent, relentless, and tireless leader, preacher, and minister of the gospel in and around Jerusalem. And that eventually got him a ticket to Rome where he became the pastor of the church at Rome, the first bishop of Rome. And that assignment eventually got him executed. So preaching the gospel and caring for people, for whatever reason, preaching the gospel and caring for people, 
tends to rile the status quo, tends to rile governing authorities, tends to rile those who have worldly power. Nero, the Caesar at the time, did not care for Peter. And in in or around 67 AD, Peter was sentenced to death for his ministrations. And then Jesus ends verse 19 with, follow me. He's telling Peter, you're going to have to follow me to your own cross, Peter. And that's how Peter was executed. It's interesting, the Romans were really into crucifixion. We talked about that earlier in the book of John. They, 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 they perfected it. They did it a lot. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of crucifixions over the centuries in ancient Rome. They were really good at it, and it was their chosen way of executing people. What we're told from the history books, though, is that when they went to Peter and said, you're going to be executed, you're going to be crucified, he said, I cannot bear to be crucified like my Lord and Savior. I want you to crucify me upside down. So crucifixion was bad enough already, but to have it done to you upside down must have been truly miserable. It's quite amazing. Uh, Let me close by pointing out what I think is the obvious here. Peter believed the love, grace, patience, and restoration uh, of Jesus was actually worth giving his life for, literally. He gave his life serving others, gave his life for the testimony and the truth of who Jesus is. Now, I want you to hear this. It's very likely that none of us will ever have to bear that cross. It's very likely that none of us will ever actually have that point where we have to either retract our testimony of Jesus or be killed. Probably not going to happen to anybody in this room. But two things about that, then I'm done. The gospel is valuable, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're sinners, that we're divided, separated from God because of our sin, and it's only through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we can be reconciled and restored to God given our place in the kingdom of God, that is valuable. And it's worth more than we know. And Peter's an exemplar of that. We can look to Peter for affirmation that putting your faith and trust in Jesus is a good and profitable thing to do. But here's the other thing. Peter was willing to die for all of that, literally. That's significant. But, like I said, in our context where death may not necessarily be on the table for any of us, I think the question becomes this. Are you and I willing to live for Jesus? In fact, living for him could be way more difficult than actually dying for him. You ever think about it that way? Living for Jesus means that we're going to be mocked and ridiculed. We're going to be trolled. Living for Jesus means that we'll occasionally have to pass up worldly opportunities or worldly opportunities will just pass us by because we're people of faith. Living for Jesus says that we're going to have to say no to many things that we would really like to not say no to. In some respects, living for Jesus is more difficult than dying for Jesus. And of course, my prayer is that Redemption Arcadia would be a church that lives for Jesus. The gospel is worth it. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, again, we thank you for this testimony that we are given by Jesus, by John, by Peter. We thank you for John's life in ministry as well as Peter's, for what he's done, everything that he's recorded, everything that he's written in the New Testament. Even Peter ended up writing words by the power of the Holy Spirit that are in the Bible. So God, we thank you for that. We're privileged to be part of a faith community that that can not only know who you are, but also has at our fingertips everything we need to know you even better. We're grateful for that. So God, I pray that we would be a faith community that would embody that. That we would be a faith community that, like Jesus, would be incarnational. We would love our neighbors. That we would love each other. That we would stand for each other as we stand for you, as we make that commitment and sacrifice to stand for you and to proclaim who you are, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to...
uh, spend some time now singing a couple more songs. We're also going to take the Lord's Supper together. If our our, uh, servers would please come forward. When you come out of your your row and into the aisle and come down here and grab a kit, what you're confessing is that you need Jesus. That you recognize that you've been separated from God. I've been separated from God by my sin. But that Jesus has come to take care of that for us. And so it's a confession, but it's also a celebration. Because we just get to receive this free gift of grace. It's a beautiful thing. Just a few days earlier, a few weeks earlier, from the story we looked at tonight, Jesus was with his friends and he said, during the Passover meal, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after they had eaten, he took the cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. My new covenant with you and with all who would follow. It's poured out, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us that every time we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Confession and celebration. So let's do that now as we also finish by singing.
Lord God, thank you so much that you might gather us um, in one place that we could uh, praise you and be uh, fed uh, by you, and that we could have such a wonderful image of your body and your blood to remind us of how it's you that sustains us, especially as we go into this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Well, amen. Thank you guys for being here and being here this morning and worshiping with us. Today is Orientation Sunday, and all that means is that I'll be at the back. If you're new or if you've been coming for a little bit and you just want to learn a little bit about our church and about what God's doing here, I'd love to take you on a quick tour of the campus, no more than 10 minutes. You can ask me any questions, um, and I can try to help you with that. But I'm going to pray for us as we go into the week. And this is from 2 Thessalonians, and it's short. But as the posture of our hearts, if you want to just put your hand out that you're receiving this and going out into the world to give this. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you guys next week.